0: It's not a product, it's a technology.
1: It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension.
0: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. time. hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests.
2: All political lines. Australia is a
1: solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that.
2: You've got something that's transformational
1: solar window in
0: a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE community show and our show, the Science and Solutions show, are now available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Wenningall, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Kira Rundle. Hi, Kay. Hi, listeners. In the studio today, again, after a short break, we have Alan Piers, AM, who is one of Australia's best-regarded energy efficiency experts. Today, we'll concentrate on how local governments can become more focused on managing energy and climate change. Alan was involved in the Cities for Climate Protection Programme, which was an Australian local government program initiative that ran from 1997 to 2007. Hi, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Kay, and hi, Kira. Alan... Not only were you involved in that work, but you've also been involved in other work for local government.
0: Oh, yes. I've dabbled around with uh, (laughs) quite a few local governments. And in fact, a well-known consultant, Denny Green, and I uh, developed the feasibility studies for both the Moreland Energy Foundation and the Yarra Energy Foundation over the years.
1: Wow. What, What sort of this century was it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, the Moreland one was 97 or something, I think. Oh, right. um,
1: uh, uh, concurrent with the other work you no, were
0: doing. Oh, well, well, I've done quite a lot across the spectrum, in, mm. including the work with the Cities for Climate Protection Program, which was developed by the Commonwealth Government and uh, implemented uh, by the ICLE, uh Icli. what's ICLE? Uh International Councils for... Mm, I can't Something remember like that. now. Something like was But their Australian base was in Melbourne, so mm-hmm. I helped them with default indicators of greenhouse gas emissions so that councils could develop initial inventories of emissions and things like that. How many councils were there involved? Uh, well, it was nearly 200 uh, wow. over the program, so it was a very widespread program. I wouldn't say there was a lot of implementation, but there was certainly a lot of awareness raising and development of carbon inventories, and production of very good resources.
1: What did they actually get to do? What what were you advocating?
0: Well, we produced a manual for, for example, managing energy in local government in 1999. And in that, what we tried to do was get organisational, practical commitment to climate action instead of high-level, warm, fuzzy, good intentions type stuff And so our our manual actually had, we, we identified all of the functional groups in the council, like the community services group and the corporate support people and the information systems people and the finance people, all those different ones. And then we produced worksheets for all of them, telling them all the things they could be doing to support a low carbon future. And I think that was important because what, what every organisation tends to do is they set up a sustainability team or one person <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then everyone else in the organisation says, oh, good, I don't have to do this stuff. They're, that's their job, you know. And so by giving them a, these worksheets, and we used to run uh, workshops with some of the councils, and so, you know, the financial guys would be a bit surprised at how much work they should <laughs> be doing Uh introducing clauses into their contracts that required their suppliers and their contractors to do certain things.
1: So So then you had to have KPIs for all these different departments Mm. to do that Mm. so that that's how you got the buy-in is it?
0: Well again I given that the program shut down in 2007 I don't know how much real long-term buy-in we got but the point was what we did achieve with the councils where we worked with this manual was that we at least got broad corporate recognition that every group within the council should be doing things. And if they didn't know how to, then the sustainability group could help them. But they actually had a fundamental responsibility, you know, for the things that they influenced. Mm,
1: mm. And it it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because it isn't just about a sustainability department. It's about the financial department making decisions on how to spend the money and, and how to make savings like getting electric vehicles for instance yeah
0: and and you know the the community health and welfare group mm. are engaging with a lot of people in the community and using energy in facilities and people are traveling around and you know there's lots to do
1: mm. but you know i don't understand at the moment where different departments where the responsibility is so if you have a sustainability department. Can they oversee the actions of other departments, or are they sort of? Do they have to report back to the councillors? Well, that well
0: in, in a council, you've got a management structure of permanent employees, and the susta- the sustainability people are often fairly junior, actually. So this is where again the organisational structure has got to respond, and if the sustainability people have to have good access to senior management who will ensure that KPIs are drafted for each group and that there's proper supervision and accountability for those groups because otherwise it's all good intentions, isn't it? Mm. And it has to be built in. And I think, you know, when you do look particularly, not just in local government, but every organisation, a lot of those middle level managers are flat out. You know, they've got their narrow KPIs and they're really busy. And so if you're trying to add extra things around the fringes that aren't locked in to institutional structure, you have a problem.
2: So how do you get around that problem? Um, not only in business, but at the government level as well.
0: Well, I think with, with local government, what we tried to do was, first of all, you know, run workshops with all of these people to help them understand that they did have a role. And again, if you've got a council-level commitment, which initially comes from the elected councillors, but then they expect senior management to implement that, But somehow or other often that hasn't happened. So then senior management has a directive from the councillors to say, you will implement this. And the manual that we produce provided a practical mechanism so that the CEO, the chief financial officer, all these people could see what are the kinds of things these people need to do. And then it's really up to them to lock them into their work programs and KPIs and budgets and all of those kinds of things. So that's one way. I think one of the things that's quite exciting now that we're starting to see with councils, of course, is the is the declarations of a climate emergency, particularly with commitments to get at least operational emissions of councils down to net zero.
1: Getting back to that... Um You said your program ran until 2007 and you had about 200 councils on board there. At the moment in Australia, I think there's about, what is it, 40 councils that have declared a climate emergency? I think it's up to 70 or 80. 70 or 80, is is
0: it? Well, before Christmas, there was a big rush, (laughs) (laughs) including my local council, Bayside.
1: I know that they say that there's 1,261 jurisdictions in 25 countries that have declared a climate emergency. And in Britain, over 80% of the population lives in areas that have declared a climate emergency, and that's about 400 councils. Even in New Zealand, not even, because it's a lot better than us, 74% of the population has that. But here in Australia, it's much, much lower at the moment. So it seems as though we've gone backwards from what your initiatives were from 1997 to 2007 to where we're starting from now.
0: Well, well, exactly. I mean, Australia in the early 90s was actually a global leader in climate policy and action. So people might not realise, but in 1990, uh, the Hawke government actually introduced an interim planning target for Australia to stabilise carbon emissions at 1988 levels by oh, 2000. 1988 levels. In 1992, the State Electricity Commission of Victoria published a comprehensive strategy on how it would achieve the Toronto target of a 20% reduction in emissions by 2005.
1: Wow. And in fact, Australia And I thought would... Margaret Thatcher was
0: revolutionary. Yeah. And one other important one was that in Australia was actually the eighth country in the world to ratify, not just sign, and there's a two-stage process, Mm. ratify the U.N. Climate Change Convention in 1992.
1: 1992. We just... Everything fell apart. What happened after 1992?
0: (laughs) Oh, uh, changes of government, changes of Prime Minister. uh, So we didn't change
1: government because then there was another Labour government elected, wasn't it?
0: Yes, but, well, nationally there was a change from Bob Hawke to Paul Keating, and Paul Keating really was not interested in in climate change. In fact, I've just been looking at his biography, and the the word climate, the phrase greenhouse gas emissions, is not in the index. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) But in Victoria, of course, the Kennett government came in and sold off the SEC, shut down most energy efficiency and renewable Mm. programs, and that was then followed
1: by other states... That was where the rot really set in then. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. So basically, 90, end of 1992 was the big disaster for climate policy in
1: Australia. What was the rationale for that? Well, <laughs> oh, markets are really efficient. Oh, it's all market-driven. <laughs> and the private sector is
0: so much smarter than the public sector. <laughs>
1: <laughs> So, Ellen, just before the show, you were telling us about. We've just been talking about the number of councils that have declared a climate emergency. You were telling us about Bayside?
0: Yeah, well, just council, before Christmas, Bayside Council, which, which
1: is in, in Victoria, in, yeah, in Brighton, sort of area. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, Bayside is not considered a radical council by any means, no. uh, but they unanimously declared a climate emergency uh, due to a great effort by the Bayside Climate Change Action Group, led by David Rothfield, who who did an amazing... XBZE person. There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, Did an amazing job. But the exciting thing for me about that was that, well, one, it was unanimous. Two, they actually committed to zero net emissions for council operations from 2020. Now, that's a lot better than 2025. That's now. That Mm -hmm. is now. Mm -hmm. And the thing about that is that clearly they're not going to cut all their emissions to zero this year so they're going to have to buy carbon offsets and once you commit to zero emissions and buying carbon offsets you effectively put a carbon price on all of your emission related activities because if we don't reduce that emission we have to buy an offset and so what it's actually a good underhanded way to get a carbon price into a local government organisation, and that then starts to be a driver for all of the organisational units, even if they're not particularly interested in climate or anything like that, because it's it's affecting their bottom line. Did they realise they were doing that? I think so. Well, one of the councillors is a prominent uh, financial commentator, a guy called Michael Hefferman. I think he knew what was going on, and in fact, uh, he spoke passionately about the importance of getting moving, of doing things. And I think most economists would say if you want to do things, putting a price on carbon is not a bad way to do it. And that's what they've done.
2: So we just talked about Bayside, which have committed by 2020 to be net zero. Um, A lot of other councils have committed to be net zero emissions by 2030. Do you think this is an aggressive enough timeline? So significant?
0: I, I think the twenty thirty commitments are in many cases for the whole community, not mm. just for the council operations. So I, I think it's important to get the council moving now, in the way that Bayside are proposing. But the the twenty thirty community emission level I think is a much more challenging task because obviously, you know, the councils don't control the electricity suppliers or, or the public transport systems and things like that. So I think Um, That is more complicated. But again, council can do a lot in providing the infrastructure, the leadership and the support and building the networks. Uh, They can provide pipelines of work for low carbon businesses. You know, there's
1: there's lots that council can do. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to Alan Peers and we're talking about what actions a uh, council, local government, can take on climate change. So, Alan, does a council need a climate emergency plan to get started?
0: Uh, well, I think that getting going on a climate emergency plan is a really important thing to do because you do need a structure. But I think that there are lots of quite specific things we know how to do, and a lot of councils are doing them, you know. I mean, I've got a new pavilion just being built on the park where I live, and it's got a big solar system on it and there was certainly a lot of insulation went into it and all the windows are double glazed. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unnecessary concrete around. Mm -hmm. uh, Not not zero carbon concrete. And and it's got a gas water heater for some reason.
1: I can't understand that one.
0: But, you know, like you can see, they're making quite an effort with,
1: with what they're doing. Okay. Then, of course, it has to. They have to develop a strategic plan once they've got that. Well, and
0: that's yeah. So there's two things. One is there's lots we can do now while we are developing the strategic plan. And one of the valuable things about acting while developing the plan is that you are learning from experience, Mm. and you are building engagement as you go, instead Mm -hmm. of you know. Hiding away in a cupboard for a year or something, and and then producing a glossy document mm-hmm. that that then the next group of councillors might not pursue.
1: Talking about that, well, not so much the councillors, but but the um, people behind the scenes. Mm. When you had your program from nineteen ninety seven to two thousand and seven, that obviously fell apart at the end of it, and I'd be interested to know mm. the reason why. Mm. Because it seems to me, unless everybody else, everybody in the whole group is committed to driving this, Mm. then Mm. things just don't get done, do they?
0: Yeah. Well, again, I don't think everyone. I mean, look, one person can make a difference, but it's a lot easier if the organisations are all in line and committed. The basically, the cities for climate protection funding funding was shut down at the Commonwealth level in two thousand and seven, and that's because. When the Rudd government was developing uh, its carbon pricing scheme, there was a big review done to identify all of the programs that weren't complementary to carbon pricing. So a lot of programs that were actually very good were shut down by the Rudd government because they assumed that the carbon pricing would replace Mm. them and make them irrelevant so they would be a waste of money and effort. Oh, that's so sad. Well, yeah. (laughs) As things played out, it was very sad.
1: Uh, Why can't you have those sort of things running concurrently?
0: Well, that was the question I was asking at the time, along with many other people. Because, again, I, I think it comes down to the fact that a lot of the people who developed the carbon pricing scheme for the federal government were econocrats who think from top down and they perceive the world as being one with big levers and if you pull the big lever of carbon pricing, magically everyone will respond because they're rationally economic, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And they don't face a whole lot of complicated little barriers. <laughs>
1: well, this leads me on to the next question then. Breakthrough, which is a local climate think tank, in a recent report called The Understanding of Climate Emergency in Local Government states that the most important action of councils is to advocate to higher levels of government for emergency action. So the opposite of what you've just said. Do you agree with that? Um, Well, well, basically, it's
0: an important thing to do, but you need to be performing. I mean, I think this is the point that came out at the Bayside Declaration of Climate Emergency. We don't have time to stuff around advocating to governments that are not interested in doing anything, we have to be the change.
2: So it's more like a lead by example.
0: Well, I think you do both, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's what you do. But the point is, as we've seen now, the the way that, say, rooftop solar has been driven has reframed everyone's thinking about what's possible. So I think that the doing is really important because it's not only showing what's possible, but it's building the infrastructure and the industry and the business and the, and, and the customers, which are all fundamental to the change.
1: Well, the thing is now that we d- we are running out of time, so we have to do something very quickly. As you say, people have to act and they have yeah. to act right now. Yeah. Again, it's one thing to call a climate emergency, but you just have to do something. And I, yeah. I just don't feel as though we we understand what it is we have to do.
0: Yeah, well, again, I think a lot of the policy work and and ideas and programs even are fairly long term. And I think we have to focus much more on fast transition solutions. And there are lots. For for example, a lot of people say, oh, well, my hot water service is not very old. I'm not going to replace it with a, a heat pump. But in the old days, when we had lots of existing electric water heaters and we wanted to go solar, they used to have what they called a five-way adapter. And you can still get these. Mm. And you could then connect your solar system into your existing hot water tank. Now, those five-way adapters would work perfectly. So we could do, do that, that right now. plug-on heat pump. So you could do that and keep your old tank and just right add, now. The, add the heat pump right now. And again, data analytics are moving really fast And uh, for example, one of the big energy retailers, if you tell them all about your lifestyle and your appliances, will give you quarterly updates using machine learning and data analytics to tell you how you're using energy and flag problems you might have. So there's all of this stuff coming through where with data analytics, we can identify poor practices, inefficient appliances, all sorts of stuff to replace it now because it's faulty. It's, it's a problem. We can fix it now. So likewise, uh, Peter Newman from Western Australia is very keen on, on the trackless tram. And mm-hmm. again, this is the idea of how can we quickly get public transport infrastructure in? And a trackless tram is like a really, really long, multi-articulated bus that carries lots of people. and it's
1: We'd have to tear like up all tram. our tram tracks.
0: No, no, you can put it on all the ones where we don't have trams. That's the point. All the roads. We've got so lots we have places where we don't have trams. We
1: can use uh, it. Instead
0: of buses? Um, yeah, um, and they'll carry along. Or we could have electric buses. Yeah. likewise, in Beijing, what they've done is just fence off one lane of a lot of their roads, and that's the low-speed vehicle lane, so that's for the e-bikes, the e-scooters, the e-skateboards, the, the <laughs> tiny little micro-cars <laughs> for the disabled people, and,
1: you know... <laughs> The well, little, the uh, tiny micro freight vehicles. Because they they're so scared of uh, ice vehicles and big trucks. I know it's, mm. you do have to have a separate lane for these sort of vehicles.
0: Well, this is a key point: is that councils need to be recognising the barriers to to community mm-hmm. change and feeling safe while you're using all of these new kinds of vehicles
1: is really important. Well, it really brings me to another question then. All these things that councils don't know about, how do they find out about them? How do they find out what they have to do? That's a good question. <laughs> well, they can listen to BZE.
0: <laughs> they can, you know, hopefully read your find reports. a copy of this manual of ours. And, uh, and I think, you know, that's what we have to... We have to shift the projects that people are doing in councils towards what, do, what can we do fast and work with state government and others and business to to get onto it
2: you also mentioned big data and that there's a lot of information that we've already collected but we maybe don't know how to analyze it or extract useful information from that, but there are companies out there that are really, really good at yeah. doing that, especially for big corporations. Mm. Um, do you know of any kind of push for government to start using this big data that we already have access to?
0: Well, the Victorian government does have a team trying to work out what how to make better use of our smart meter data. <laughs> so there is some progress. How long have the smart
1: meters been in place? Oh, I don't know. Quite twenty a few years, years or
0: now. Ten years at Ten least. Years. Yeah. So, um, so we have a lot of data there, and uh, also there are some great startups uh, that have been emerging who are applying. Like they're coming from outside the energy and climate mm-hmm. space, and they're data nerds, and they <laughs> they do amazing things with data. So mm-hmm. we need to encourage them too.
1: Uh, you had an article, Alan, in the what was it called? Uh, Pearls and Pearls irritations. Pearls and irritations. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Menidue's column and mm. or website. Mm. Can you tell us about that article? Okay. Well, uh, the Pearls and
0: Irritations column is, uh, website's really interesting because a lot of former public servants who know where a lot of skeletons lie oh. write, write for it, so it's good. Uh, so that I guess there's two things. One is to highlight that most people don't understand exactly what the government's Paris commitment is and it's actually a lot easier to achieve than most people realise. Oh, I think
1: the government realises. The
0: government exactly. <laughs> the government knows what it's doing, and they are being very good at confusing everyone about exactly what their obligations are. Mm. And their obligations are nothing like what we should be doing, of course. <laughs> so that's that's a key thing. And the, the the second element was really about we need a transparent, visible. I don't know, registry or something uh, so that state governments, councils, businesses, communities who are really acting can be clearly recognised for what they achieve so that the federal government can't continue free riding
2: mm-hmm. on
0: the good efforts of so many Australians and pretending that they're doing a good thing when in fact in many cases they're the problem. Mm-hmm. So they're
1: not doing anything in it all of us are doing a whole exactly. lot of things
0: exactly they're free riding on mm. all of our work mm-hmm.
1: so we they should be exposed <laughs> Well, but they're actually claiming credit because I read yeah. just now that um, emissions have started to go down again. Yeah. So and well, it, they do because claim of all... the credit, because,
0: but it's not because of them.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, apparently it's because of the drought, and then there's, there's no—that's well, part of it. Yeah. yeah, which has been a big factor. Yeah.
0: But but you know the ongoing growth of renewables, and in fact we are actually becoming more energy efficient. Just no one's noticing it. Um, so there's a lot going on and they're claiming all the credit for it and the state governments and local councils, businesses, everyone's doing lots and they're not getting recognition for it and yep. the government is effectively
1: taking the credit, unfairly. On that happy nose. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, tell us where people can find out more about this, about local government action.
0: Uh, well, I think I, I would suggest they look search for ICLEI and ask I-C-L-I.
1: I-C-L-E-I. I-C-L-E-I.
0: Yeah, uh, because they are still active. They are still uh, running in Melbourne. And you, they could dust off their old cities for climate protection resources. Because they're still very valid. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Sadly. Thanks so much for your time today, Alan. My pleasure. We've been listening to Alan Peers from RMIT. The Beyond Zero Show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week.
2: Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.